me say also good morning and welcome. If you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. And so turn to Luke 10. We're going to be in verses 25 and following as we continue our summer series that we started last week, uh, looking at the parables. Uh, we've entitled the series Stories with Jesus. And, and part of what we're trying to do with these parables is just think through what are we to love? And this morning, we're going to think on the topic of loving our neighbor. Now, we're going to do so by looking at what is often known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that's a common story to you, likely whether uh, you're a Christian or not a Christian. I, I bet even when I just say the word Samaritan, the immediate thing you think is good. If you're like me, you think of the last episode of Seinfeld and the Good Samaritan laws. But for the original hearers, this would not have been a commonplace story at all. It, it would not have been a comfortable story. In fact, it would have been quite shocking but as we're going to see, it's a shocking story that will help us understand what is real care, what is profound love. I think it begs the question, as we think about the kind of things that we are to love, what is love? You know, we live in a culture that diminishes that word. We say things like, I love tacos. I love good coffee. I love the beach. I love queso. I love Krispy Kreme donuts when the hot light is on. One of my former pastors used to warn single girls when they were dating guys who would say they loved them. He would say, they may love you like they love a donut and his hot light might be on. We can also sometimes see love as sentimentality, but love is more than sentimentality or sympathy. After all, sympathy can be good, but sympathy alone ultimately does nothing for the hurting, nothing for the orphan, nothing for the homeless man or the single mother down the street. Wearing the wristband ultimately does nothing for the girls that are being sold into brothels. Not to mention just in our own relationships, sentimentality with our wife or with our children or close family members and friends ultimately does nothing for them if it's just sentimentality. So real love is displayed, you might say, in a passion or compassion that moves us to action. And that's what we're going to see in this famous story this morning. Now, before we kind of make our way there, I... I just want to say something up front, merely talking about the idea of love of neighbor and as we're going to see in this text, mercy ministry, sadly in our culture raises some eyebrows and it does so for a couple of reasons. You know, on the one hand, we don't want to be labeled as those holding to a works-based salvation. And on the other hand, most of us don't want to be called theologically liberal. And to both of those, both sides of that concern, I want to let the great Baptist preacher, a man named Charles Spurgeon, prepare us for this text with a quote that he was giving as he was talking about this parable of the Good Samaritan. I think it helps hit at both sides of what I was trying to talk about. These are things that will come up along the way in the sermon. And here's what Spurgeon says. Even in expounding the law, Jesus always has a gospel design. Two ends are served by him setting up a high standard of duty. On the one, he slays the self-righteousness who claim to have kept the law by making people feel the impossibility of salvation by their own works. On the other hand, he calls believers away from all content with the mere decencies of life and the routine of outward religion and stimulates them to seek after the highest degree of holiness. Indeed, after that excellence of character, which only his grace can provide. I think we're going to see both of these things this morning in this text. We're going to see an assault on works-based salvation. We're going to clearly see from this text, we cannot merit eternal life. 
But on the other hand, we're going to see that while we are saved by faith alone, we are not saved by a faith that is alone. I think we'll see both of those things in the text. So let's read and, and then we're going to pray again and ask for God's help as we work through this, this famous story. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, a doctor named Luke writes this as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three? do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Father, now as we give our attention to your word, Father, I do ask that you would help, help me, a sinner, to preach with confidence in your word for the good of your people. Father, to preach your word clearly for the sake of the lost. And Father, to preach faithfully for the glory of your name. Father, now in our midst, would you do a thousand miracles? Miracles of salvation and miracles of sanctification. Father, would you now would you sanctify us in the truth? We know your word is truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we are masters at self-justification. This hit home to me when I, years ago, was a teacher teaching in high school. And I would always give, as we passed out a test, I'd always give the obligatory no talking during the test. And yet what would inevitably happen, they just could not help themselves. These teenagers would begin to talk during the test. And yet as I would confront a rebellious talker, I would get all kinds of excuses, all kinds of justifications for their behavior. I would get things like, well, I'm just asking for a pen or she's having a really bad day and I'm checking on her thinking, no, she knows the answer to number three and you're checking on that. They would give these justifications as if their excuses were exceptions to the clear command I had just given them. Now, this is, this is deep within us, right? This is evident in our first parents, Adam and Eve, as, as they seek to justify their sin. In fact, Adam blames God and Eve for his sins right? The woman you gave me made me do this. Eve blames the serpent because after all, and we see this in children, but we should see this in ourselves. It is just never our fault. And oftentimes this can take the form of questions to justify our behavior. 
A good friend of mine's mom who had ended her second marriage and was on her way to a third once said to my twin brother, I know I'm not supposed to be divorced for this, the Bible says, but doesn't God just want me to be happy? We all do this where we ask questions, but they are not questions where we're hoping to learn. They are questions we use to try to justify our behavior. We do this, right? I know the Bible says this, but what about this case? What about this exception? I just can't help but think, and whether we admit it or not, if we're not like those teenagers who hear what the Bible says about topics like sex and yet immediately want to ask the question, how far is too far? And that's sort of what is going on in Luke 10 with this lawyer. He is going to ask questions, but there are going to be questions seeking to justify his own behavior. Now, my main idea is this, because we have been shown love, we love neighbors as we love ourselves. Because we have been shown love, we love neighbors as we, uh, as we love ourselves. Now, here's the context of what's happening in Luke chapter 10. Jesus has already in Luke now set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He is headed towards the cross. And on his journey, he meets this lawyer, a lawyer that the text tells us stands up to put him to the test. It appears maybe that this lawyer thinks Jesus does not have a high enough view of the law. And yet Jesus will show him, I have an even higher view of the law than you. It's so lofty, in fact, that no one this side of Jesus can actually fully obey it. And more than that, he has now again set his face to Golgotha for people who cannot and have not fulfilled the law. Now, the text asks a bunch of questions, so it wants us to ask questions as well. And this, we're going to look at three questions this morning as we consider the topic of true love. And the first one is this, who inherits eternal life? We see this in verses 25 through 28. Here's what it says. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this lawyer is not a lawyer in the sense that we think of it. This isn't the TV show Suits or Perry Mason or Matlock. Some of you will know Matlock. That's when Andy Griffith played a lawyer. This isn't Johnny Cochran. Instead, he is an expert in the Mosaic law. He would have been well-versed in the scriptures. And so really you could say a theologian stands up to put Jesus to the chest, to try to trap Jesus. And he tests him by asking the most important question anybody can ask. Is there life after this life? And if so, how do I inherit it? This is a common question, right? King Solomon tells us why, because God has put eternity in our hearts. The lawyer, however, is not genuinely seeking to be taught. He is more keen on embarrassing or trapping Jesus, likely trying to see if Jesus will contradict the law. And how sad is it that such a weighty question is trivialized by such poor motives? So Jesus asked him a question in return. Verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? I love Jesus. Jesus doesn't, or so often doesn't just answer a question. He returns with a question himself. He turns it back on the man. Jesus implies, you're an expert in the law. What does it say? It's interesting. In some sense, Jesus is turning the trap around. He's seeking to trap this man. But one of the things we need to understand is that Jesus's questions, Jesus's traps are always ones of compassion. This encounter has echoes to me of an encounter we see elsewhere in the Gospels. We know it as Jesus and the rich young ruler. And what's fascinating about that story, about that narrative, is a part of it that I so often forget. Because it says of Jesus, when he sees the rich young ruler, it says this, 
It says, looking at him, he loved him. So often forget that even as Jesus is confronting this young man who seems to have everything, Jesus loves him. Jesus' traps are ones of love. He is, he is seeking to show this self-righteous theologian his need for mercy, his, his need for a savior, because he cannot fully follow the law or rely on his works to save him. The lawyer answers the question, verse 27. He says this, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This expert in the law responds with the law. He quotes what's called the Shema from Deuteronomy. We read that together. He quotes also from Leviticus. He quotes what in another place is called the greatest commandment and the one like it. We've been studying our way through the Torah. He quotes these these two commands on which all the Ten Commandments hang. The first four are all about loving God. The final six are all about loving neighbor. And this is what they are. This is a summary of them. We are to have faith in God and delight in him above all else with our whole being. And this vertical love for him must also play out in horizontal love for neighbor, neighbor that is equal to how we care for and love ourselves. Now we hear that so often, love neighbor as you love yourself, that it can become commonplace to us. I want to let the force of it sit with us for just a second. We are to love our neighbors with the exact same intense love that we love ourselves. Now, Jesus is going to commend this answer, actually. He said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. He says, you've answered right. He also commends the life characterized by that answer. There's nothing wrong with his answer, though there is a problem. Again, Jesus is trying to expose this lawyer to the idea that he will fall short in order to show him his need for something else. He doesn't rebuke him based on his orthodoxy. He says, you have answered right, but just like he does with the rich young ruler, he is trying to reveal to this man that he cannot live up to the commands that he has just given him. We need to ask the question as we come to a text like this, is it true that if you do these two things, you will live? And the answer is yes, Jesus is not lying to him. Jesus is not playing some verbal shell game with him. In fact, Jesus is saying, if you perfectly obey these commands, you will have no need of saving. And that exposes the problem. No one does this. No one can do this because we are sinners who do not 100% of the time love God with total devotion or love our neighbor with the same joy, intensity, and care as we do ourselves. So then if this is the requirement, we all have no hope. We all die guilty before God, deserving of condemnation, and that is the hook. If we have to do something in order to merit eternal life, just think about that. You don't do something to inherit anything. You're born into a family. That's how you get an inheritance. That's what Jesus is trying to show him. If we have to do something in order to merit eternal life, we are doomed But Jesus in his grace is showing this lawyer that the law has not been given to produce in us righteousness, but to show us that we fall short of the standard. It has been given to us to reveal our sin and thus drive us to our need for a savior and the mercy of God. I made an allusion to this at the beginning, but this parable is not teaching works-based salvation. It's certainly not teaching salvation by roadside assistance. 
And as a guy who is very car illiterate, I'm so thankful for that. I'm like Seinfeld talked about, if I open the hood of your car and there's not a large on off switch turned off, I have no way to help you. We need to understand this morning, Jesus is not setting his face like Flint to the cross so that we can be saved by being like a good neighbor. Instead, Jesus is intending to crush the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. He's intending to crush our own self-righteousness by exposing we will not keep the law and so we will need a savior. What should the response of the lawyer be? What should our response be to this kind of news? Jesus will be more explicit later on in Luke's gospel. Interestingly, in a parable that's called the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. In this parable, you have this Pharisee who looks at the tax collector and he says, thank you, God, that I'm not like him. And then Jesus gives us the right response as he turns our attention to that tax collector who, upon seeing the holiness of God, seeing his own sin in comparison to that holiness, can't even lift up his head, but simply beats his chest and says, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Jesus uses very interesting language in that parable because he says, that man goes down to his house justified. Now, it seems clear the lawyer recognizes what Jesus is doing and that even on his best day, he cannot live out this command. And so, so what is his response? And instead of asking for the mercy of another, instead of seeking to find a justification outside of himself, the Bible tells us very clearly he tries to justify himself. And that leads to the second question, verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Apparently, Jesus' answer is not satisfactory for the man because he's not really interested in answers. He wants a category of non-neighbor in order to have an excuse so he doesn't have to love some people. And Jesus isn't having it. Instead, instead of lowering the requirements, Jesus now turns to a story that radically redefines who our neighbor is and what love for that neighbor should look like. Now, it's important to note as a key application for us before we turn to the story. And I, again, I made mention of it at the beginning. But as the great reformer Martin Luther puts it, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Some of us might be like this lawyer who want eternal life, but we don't want the life that accompanies that life. May that be true of us, right? I want the salvation you offer, but I do not want the life that you command. A life of repentance and faith and obedience. Some may even, like the lawyer here, and I find this own temptation in my own heart, sometimes we want to try to use the Bible to try to get out of obeying the Bible. We might say something like this, we just need to preach the gospel and not worry about mercy ministry. After all, the greatest need somebody has is salvation. And at first glance, that might sound good. But we must need to be reminded right this morning, we have the gospel. And because our spiritual need has been taken care of, we don't refuse to, to, to clothe ourselves. We don't refuse to feed ourselves. Some of us feed ourselves more than others. No, love of neighbor will mean we care about their spiritual needs as well as their physical needs. There's an added problem for us. Again, I made an allusion to this at the beginning, but, but we live in a world right, right now where, again, we, we don't want to seem woke, 
And, and so often in, in our culture, people associate caring for justice or mercy or the mar marginalized as being woke or being liberal. Brothers and sisters, we're not going to just let progressive so-called theologians who love some of the horizontal commands of the Bible while almost wholly denying and rejecting the vertical ones be the experts in neighbor love because we don't want to have a certain label affixed to us. Again, a friend put it like this in a new book. It's a book called Spurgeon and His Care for the Poor, written by a pillar pastor. He said this, Liberals have sold their birthright for a mess of porridge by prioritizing earthly handouts over eternal inheritance. But conservatives can react against these gospel compromising errors by refusing to talk of caring for the poor and social engagement altogether. Brothers and sisters, we must remember as we come to this passage, the priority of justification by faith. For indeed, what would it profit a man to gain the entire world and yet lose his own soul? All the while remembering that Paul tells his young protege Titus that Jesus has given himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people who, listen to this, are zealous for good works. Being zealous for good works is not being woke. It's simply being a Christian. Now, Jesus gets to the story, verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. When I hear those words, half dead, I can't help but think of the princess bride. I hear Billy Crystal's, uh, Billy Crystal's voice, he's mostly dead. And don't you love Jesus? He, he answers the second question. So he answers the first question with a question. He answers the second question with a story. Imagine if I did that. If Dwayne's like, hey, Nate, what's your position on the millennium? I'm like, well, you see, Dwayne, a priest, a Levite, and a Baptist preacher go into a Mexican restaurant. But Jesus is wise in how he responds. He's not intending to engage in a theological duel with this man. Jesus is not trying to win an argument. Jesus is trying to convert a heart. And he's doing so with a disarming story. May we remember, particularly in a social media age, may we be careful to seek to win arguments while losing opportunities to show true love. And here's the scene. This Jewish man walks outside the camp of Jerusalem. He goes on this very familiar 17-mile stretch of road that goes down from Jerusalem all the way down to Jericho. And on the way, a, a group of thieves who come up on him and they brutalize him, strip him, rob him, and they leave him for dead. Now, now put yourself in the story. Imagine walking up on this man. A few years ago in, in my neighborhood, I, I was driving home and I, as soon as I turned this corner, there was this middle school kid just like pummeling this other middle school kid. So I, I put the car in brake, I jump out of the car and I'm like, hey, and the kid sprints off. And I'm like, yeah, you middle school punk, you better run from me. But like really put yourself in the story. Like imagine today you're driving home and there's a man who looks almost dead on Capitol Boulevard on the side of the road. Man lays there made in the image of God. That's what's happening here. And the question is, will anybody come to his rescue? Jesus continues the story, verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. 
By chance, meaning this situation has happened in the ordinariness of everyday life. And along come these two religious elite, a priest and then somebody who would have basically been considered a priest helper. They come upon this naked man covered in blood. And the text says when they saw him, these two who are normally commended in this society, they walk onto the other side of the road. They pass him on by. Christians for centuries have tried to explain why they walk to the other side. Maybe they wanted to stay ritually clean. Maybe they were afraid that the same thing that happened to this man might happen to them. Ultimately, the Bible doesn't tell us why, because likely it doesn't matter. They walked on by. They refused to check if he's even alive. They certainly refused to extend him mercy and fulfill the commands, the weightier commands of the law. You might say it like this. They just didn't want to get involved. They might have even been thinking something like this. As a priest and as a Levite, I've got so many important things to do. I'm just too busy to help. Now, Jesus completely shocks the audience with verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Jesus introduces a Samaritan as the hero in the story. And there's, a, there's an intent to that. He's, he's seeking to cut at the lawyer's pride by showing that neighbor love has no racial, spiritual, or national boundaries. The Samaritans were despised by the Jews. They were seen as both racial and spiritual half-breeds. In fact, Jewish children would be taught to pray something like this. Dear God, please bless mommy and daddy and please don't remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. And yet it says of the Samaritan, when he saw this Jewish man, just let this sink in, he had compassion on him. Again, we'll see his compassion moves him to action. He doesn't just check on him. He doesn't just say a quick prayer and move on with life. Instead, he sees someone in distress and stops and helps the very person who likely despises him. Again, I want us to take real stock of what's going on here. I want us to try to as best we can be as shocked as this lawyer would have been. I don't think I can improve on something my twin brother used in order to highlight how radical this is, what Jesus is saying. He said this, if Jesus were telling this story today, he might make the victim a black man and a passerby, a liberal democratic senator and a black woman with a BLM t-shirt and the hero, a white police officer. On the other hand, in some contexts, Jesus might make the victim on the ground a white police officer. And he might make the passerby a white man in a MAGA hat and a white woman wearing a pro-life sticker. And he might have the hero being a black man who's wearing a Colin Kaepernick jersey. And then Jesus would turn to us and say, go and be like him. Again, this is in order to demonstrate just how radical and different our neighbor love is supposed to be compared with the culture around us. How extravagant is the love? Well, let's see what the Samaritan does. Look at verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal. This is this incredible picture of substitution. He, he puts the man on the donkey. He walks alongside. He brings him to an inn. He takes care of him. The next day he took out two denarii. That's two days wages. He gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. 
His compassion isn't just bless your heart. No, it's extravagant in actions to care for him. He, he goes to him. He treats his wounds. He puts him again on his own donkey. You see this, this man of means walking alongside the road, carrying the donkey while this brutalized man is sitting on his own animal. He then provides shelter. He then takes care of him financially, even as he leaves. This is extravagant mercy. This is comprehensive care. The Samaritan is treating this man like family. He's treating this man like he would treat himself. Jesus gives us a picture of true neighbor love that, yes, is inconvenient, is costly, and will demand sacrifice. There are many ways that we can show love of neighbor. I would commend just as far as formal ways, go to our website, opendoorlife.com, look at the ministries tab, and look at some of our ministry partners. There are some very uh, healthy and helpful uh, organizations that we partner with in order to take care of the hurting around us. But there are also many informal ways, just as we're going along during the day in which we can help our hurting neighbors as we love them in the same way that we would love ourselves. Now, the last two verses, Jesus completely flips things around on the man. He says this, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The lawyer has been more interested in seeing who is not my neighbor, but Jesus in essence turns the question around and says, are you a neighbor? And that's the final question for us this morning. Sadly, when asked who is the neighbor, the lawyer can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. It's like me, I can't stand to say the word, you know, Duke Blue Devils or something like that. He simply says the one who showed him mercy. You can catch the force of this. I've been trying to point out how shocking this would have been. Open door family, when we show love, not just to ourselves, when we show love, not just to our family or those that we love, but to those who are not close to us, who are not like us, that's when we're going to show just how powerful our gospel actually is. How different we are who are the followers of Jesus, the very one who would tell us that we are to love our enemies and we are to bless those who curse us. The question we must wrestle with this morning is not, who is my neighbor? But it's simply this, am I being a neighbor to the ones that Jesus has put on my Jericho road? Or will we go on justifying ourselves? This did characterize the early church. One of the reasons the gospel exploded in the first century is because of their acts of radical neighbor love. In fact, Roman Emperor Julian, one known as Julian the Apostate, said this about the early Christian church. Nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, and all see that our people lack aid from us. The truth this morning is this. When we show this kind of neighbor love, we are shouting to the world, this is what our God is like. This is what the kingdom is like. This is what the future is going to look like when there is going to be a day when there are no more men on the side of the road. And so we love God and love neighbor as self, not out of guilt, but because those of us who have been shown grace are the very ones who will be marked by grace. You have to imagine 
the next time this half-dead man saw somebody in need on the side of the road, he helped him. And so it is to be with us. You know, the church has historically said that Jesus is the Samaritan. And I I think that's true, and I will try to show that. But Jesus, in some ways, is also the man beaten. Let me just think about it. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to go outside the camp. And when he does, he will fall among thieves. He will be stripped. He'll be beaten. His clothes will be divided up for lots. And the priests and the Levites will lead the cheers as they mock this man who is held up on the side of the road, drowning in his own blood. And then they'll likely go home and think, That was simply a criminal. And never think about him again. Interestingly, Jesus will tell us in Matthew's gospel that the crucified man, this crucified one, will show up in the least of these, our brothers. And the question is, when we see these types of people on the side of the road, do we see Jesus? Jesus tells us we're going to hear from them again. On this last day when there's going to be this great dividing between those that are Jesus and those that are not his. And he says, on that day, some will be told, depart from me. Because when I was hungry, you did not feed me. And when I was naked, you did not clothe me. And Jesus says, people will use questions to seek to justify themselves. And they will say, Lord, when did we see you naked? Lord, when did we see you hungry? This text has been incredibly convicting. And what's the hardest question for me to wrestle with this morning is this. Who are the hurting ones on my Jericho road that seems so inconsequential to me right now? that they're not even coming to my mind. The Bible is clear. We're going to hear from them again on a day that's going to reveal how much of what we believe has actually changed us, a faith that is not alone, and how much of it is just so much religious talk. You know, at times I think we're still those teenagers seeking to justify ourselves. There is hope this morning because there is another Samaritan. You know, I made mention of this earlier, but it's an odd question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You don't do anything to gain the inheritance. You're just simply born into the family. My dad has something like 20,000 books. There's four of us boys. Do you know who's going to get those books? None of the other seminary students, us four. And I'm the firstborn, so I should get the most. I did nothing to merit becoming an Aiken. But even more than that, we can't inherit eternal life, but even if we could, the truth is we fail, we sin. 
We cannot keep the law. We cannot with 100% intensity do what's requested of us, even in this text left to ourselves. Which is why this morning we need an act of pure grace whereby God works on our behalf to make us his own, to make us his sons and daughters who are then those able to receive the inheritance. And how has he done it? He has done it by sending to us an even better Samaritan, one who perfectly fulfilled the law. Because of that, he can both give you the forgiveness you need when you fail, but also give you the power to live these out. You see, there will be another Samaritan who will have compassion. He will have so much compassion upon his enemies that even as he's being crucified, he will say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There will be another neighbor who doesn't just help the mostly dead. In fact, he brings dead people back to life. Another Samaritan who took care of our debt at infinite cost to himself. He showed us so much grace. That's why we sing things like, he paid it all, all to him I owe. The one who for our sake, who was rich, who for our sake became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. Another neighbor who will not just risk his life for the broken. No, instead he will lay it down. In fact, John will tell us, there is no greater love than this that he laid down his life for the brothers and yet this man who never sinned who perfectly kept these two commands will become like the Samaritans he will be despised and he will be rejected by the religious leaders he will die for our sins on that tree he will die for every time I have turned a careless indifference towards a neighbor he will die for every time I have ignored the man in the road he will die for every time I have made an excuse not to love And yet, how do we know he can forgive us? And how do we know he can give us the power we need when we fail? Because three days after he died, Jesus of Nazareth, the great Samaritan, arose from the grave, triumphant over death, telling us he can do all we need, both for eternal life and to live the life that he commands of us. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian... What if your only hope of eternal life is an act of free grace from someone who doesn't owe you a thing and yet in his love and mercy gives it to you anyway? Would you want something like that? That's exactly what Jesus is offering you in the gospel. That sort of grace, that kind of help to the sinner and to the hurting. If your response this morning to the the holiness of God to the weight of your own sin is simply like that tax collector I mentioned earlier. If it's simply looking at that and saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner, he will have you. Because on the last day, there's gonna only really be two types of people. We're all gonna stand in judgment and there's gonna be two types of people. There are gonna be those who are desperate to be justified in Jesus And there are going to be those who are going to be justifying themselves. And Jesus says, he will say to them, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. But there is great hope this morning. The greatest thing that has ever happened for me is that I have found a righteousness that is not my own. Made possible because God has loved us with an infinite love. Through his son's work, he is able to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, those of us who are Christians, what should we take away this morning? It's to see that in the gospel, we have a neighbor who at infinite cost to himself cared for us. 
He gave us the exact opposite of what we deserved. He loved us. He took care of our infinite debt of sin. The truth is this morning, we have nothing that we have not received. And so when we need the right motivation for neighbor love, it is not a motivation that says, I must do this in order to be accepted by God. No, it is one that says, God has loved me. He has infinitely loved me so much so that I can now turn and do likewise. So the question this morning is, will we join him on the Jericho Road? We live in a world that desperately needs the love of Christ Will we who have been infinitely helped and cared for by the great Samaritan go and do likewise? After all, Jesus will tell us in another place very clearly, blessed are the merciful. They are the very ones who will receive mercy. Mercy.